June 2007. Frenchman living in San Francisco, Hugues de la Plaza, 36, is found dead in his locked apartment after a night out. The crime scene is violent, bloody, and leaves more questions than answers. And despite the objections of many experts, it is ruled a suicide by local authorities early on. Over 15 years on, Oog's family and friends are campaigning for answers. What happened to Oog de la Plaza? Primary sources for this episode include the San Francisco Gate, the San Francisco Chronicle, the New York Times, Hoodline, the San Francisco Weekly, 48 Hours CBS, CBS, the City of San Francisco, and the San Francisco Beacon Journal. Hi guys, welcome back to an all new episode of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. Hope that you all have had a good week. I've got a pretty big detailed case in store for you this week and I'm actually a a little bit nervous because I don't want to leave anything out for many reasons. Uh, But first off, I want to welcome new patron Jaden. Welcome. And thank you to current monthly patrons, Cheryl and Lita, who upgraded to annual membership. If you become a patron or you're a current patron, they now offer annual membership. So you don't have to worry about having money in the bank account or changing cards or something and messing with your membership. You just pay once up front, you know, $5 is $70 for the year, $5 a month. Um, so yeah, join that. So I want to get straight into this week's case and I'm, I'm scared to go into it for basically many of the reasons that I was for the old kite case, which many of you consider one of your favorite cases I've covered. That was the man in Colorado who let out a spare room in his place and someone applied for it and killed him, long story short. And because there's so many facets of that and so many details and so many potential theories, it's one of the many reasons why I compare this, the case of Hugues de la Plaza, to that case. Uh, Not only that, but kind of the setup of where they lived reminded me a lot of it. The fact that they're still kind of unsolved, but we do know someone killed Al. Whereas the Hugues de la Plaza case, a lot of people... you know, they toss up whether or not it was murder or suicide. And so first off, I want to say that um, patron Amani, when you, she chose, you get to choose a location for an upcoming episode. And she said, any case is fine by her. So because this is my choice for this week, I'm dedicating it to Amani. Amani is a patron from Louisiana who currently lives in Houston, Texas. So thank you for, I guess, saying choose any case, which you can do um, because it's given me the chance finally to do the Oog de la Plaza case. I first heard of this case probably a couple of years after it happened. And over the years, I, I would go back to it and I would find it fascinating. It was kind of a pet case of mine, I guess, much like the old kite case has become for me. Um, it fascinated me to the point where I honestly thought about it and tried to figure out what happened so much that 
I believed that I knew what had happened. I just couldn't tell you the motive, which I still can't, unfortunately. But I'll get into all that most likely in part two. But after diving into it again anew for my own podcast, my opinion flip-flopped over the circumstances of this and what was going on. And that was because I didn't listen to podcasts on this because I prefer to refer to actual official sources and proper local publications. And thankfully, San Francisco has some of the most famous ones in in the United States. The San Francisco Chronicle was obviously central to the Zodiac case. Um, I mean, and they used to do proper journalism. I doubt they do anymore. Um, so... I thought that I knew a couple of days ago what I knew and then I stumbled across even more information that kind of blew that out of the water for me and now I don't even know what I'm going to say by the end of this two-parter to be honest with you it's it's a toss-up what I think at least the motive not the manner so people call the case of Ugdela Plaza a locked room mystery it is in part but I don't think that it it really is like people seem to want to make it a clickbaity title uh, I don't think that that's important to the case at all actually um, it is creepy it's a weird case it's extremely unusual as many of the experts who arrived on the scene referred to it as and I often wonder why it isn't discussed more like a lot of other cases where people toss it up and like people are so into this Idaho case at the moment I think damn I wonder why people weren't into Oog's case like that occasionally someone covers it and then it's a 20 minute podcast and I just don't understand how you could do any of this in 20 minutes because there's just so many details and sources and sources that I've seen that no one's ever used or sought out that I found and that really concerned me um, especially over the last couple of days where I went back and checked to see if official publications or major newspapers or even 48 hours the show referred to these facts that are right there in official documents autopsy reports things like that and no one did and that really worried me and I think this deserves like a deep dive um I'm not counting this as a deep dive I'm can I'm saying like this deserves like a full podcast series by the San Francisco Chronicle or the San Francisco Gate just like the Australian did to blow the case out of the water with Chris Dawson and Lynette Dawson and he's now gone to prison for like 25 years in Australia with the teacher's pet Oog's case could do with that. Um, so to give you an idea of what this case is about, I'll start with this headline from the San Francisco Gate because they ran another article last year on Oog when it was coming up to the anniversary of his death. Quote, a San Francisco man was found dead in his locked home. Police thought it was suicide, but friends are sure it's murder. Unquote. However, it has been almost 16 years. We're coming up on that this year and Oog's case is still marked undetermined officially on the books. I do take issue with that, but it is better than having it marked either way. And we'll get into why. It is still open as well. And I want to say from the outset, there is a reward offered by Oog's family that was taken out of his life insurance. It's not offered by the city of San Francisco, unfortunately, of $100,000. And I believe that probably still stands for answers as to what happened in this case. 
So Oog was one of the first names on my list when I started this podcast, right up there with Adet Hofton. And I'm glad to finally be talking about it because I'm really passionate about it. I have exhausted every single resource there is on this. I kept putting off recording it. I was going to a couple of days ago and then I thought, no, I just need more time to let it ferment. I like to let information settle in my mind to visualize it sometimes to act it out like a lunatic like I was earlier going for a walk and physically acting out um, the action of stab wounds in my neck um, and just to get more info and luckily I gave myself that last couple of days because I was able to just find all these documents that just no one ever refers to no one ever looks at that discount a lot of things that people have of openly said to publications about this, i.e. autopsy reports. Um, There is a 48 hours episode on this that I was able to get. It was from 2009. So I was really lucky to find it, thankfully, on the CBS website. And they let me watch it, which is strange because normally they block me because I'm in Australia. The case was from 2009, the episode, and it's called A Case for Murder. I do have a lot of issues with this. I didn't at the time of watching it since I read the autopsy reports and further official documents I do. Um, And I watched that too. It adds um, a lot of information and I'll be using a few sound bites for it for this episode. But in terms of unsolved cases in 152 episodes, I'm not sure that I've ever been more certain at least of a manner of how this went down. And I know that sounds kind of cheeky because I'm not in, I'm Australian, I'm on the other side of the world. But looking at it from an outsider for like, as an outsider for such a long time, I, it blows me away that the officials and the authorities couldn't see it the way that it's so obviously happened. It just seems so obvious to me. And I find it so stressful um, that they were not able to even rationalise that and instead took evidence and twisted it and made insane, illogical conclusions that when we get into it, you'll see why they're just so illogical and so disrespectful to what happened to Oog de la Plaza. But first, as we always do, I want to talk about our victim um, because I found him really interesting and I think I would have found him really fascinating to talk to, Oog de la Plaza. Now, he was a Frenchman um, and his name is obviously, you can see how it's spelled. It's H-U-G-U-E-S. Now I have double checked this with a person that I work with who lives in Paris and as well as, you know, a lot of publications, 48 hours pronounces it right. It is pronounced Oog. Now, unfortunately, I did stumble across a very old uh, from 2009-2010 web sleuths forum that was they're really nasty in there, basically, making fun of him, making fun of how he lived, the state of his apartment, you know, a bachelor, just bagging out, you know, his apartment, which I'll get into. And and then it really, really upset me when they started um, making fun of his name and they started um, spelling it O-O-G. Um, and I was kind of like, if you want me to listen to your opinion, then at least show him this dead man, the respect of his name. It's a common name. Um, and I don't know if it's the French version of Hugh, probably. Um, France exists, other countries exist, and therefore French names exist and other nationalities' names exist. Uh, so I'm sorry that that upsets you. Um, so I, I'll be pronouncing it Oog because that's how you say it and that's... OOG is not how you spell it. 
Um, so 36-year-old Hugues de la Plaza was a French national living in San Francisco in 2007 when he was found dead in his locked apartment. According to Hoodline, Hugues was born on June 11th, 1970 in France, in a coastal region of France. Um, well, he was born in Paris, I believe, based on official documents, but he grew up in a coastal region of um, in the region of Brittany, which is on the French coast. And he died just a week short of his birthday, I figured out. So he would have been 53 this year. Um, Hugues became very, it became very personal to me on a different, in a different way. Um, Hugues reminded me a lot of my cousin, Dan, who I've talked about, who died when he was living in New Orleans, when he moved over there for a lot of reasons. Dan had a girlfriend who became an amazing support to my family and bought his remains home with her and she'd never been to Australia. She was only young. She was only in her 20s um, for a lot of reasons. Um, the way that he's described reminded me a lot of Dan, very sentimental, very sensitive, very into poetry, very kind of a lot of things that a lot of alpha males took issue with in both of them maybe um, and just how young he died as well, similar ages. But it was also... Looking at the autopsy reports made Oog very real to me. And looking at probate records that are available online, which I'll talk about, where these things start as soon as you die. They start having, it It starts happening like, you know, they have to sort out your belongings, your life insurance. These things can't wait. And within weeks, his father was having to sort through all this documentation. And this is available as public record online, which I found, which I didn't, I just noticed that no one else has ever looked at these or used them or located them. And they're right there on Google. Um, and there was a few interesting kind of tidbits in that, that I found interesting, but it hit home. This was a real guy who had belongings that you have to sort out. And he, reading the autopsy report, he was a person with, it sounds weird, but you kind of, in these cases, you boil it down to just their name. But when you're reading autopsies, which I used to enjoy doing, but I don't so much anymore for a lot of reasons, which I'll probably talk about, but you realise like he had muscles and a heart and organs and um, a brain <laughs> And I know that sounds really strange, but they become fully formed and they become not just someone who someone on Web Sleuths is laughing about. Um, sorry, I just, I'm still angry about that and it's been two days, um, but whatever. So let's go back because who Oog who was is just as important as, you know, how he died. And he achieved a lot in his 36 years. And it's also important to discuss Oog warts and all. I always believe that um, it really irks me when people are painted in this perfect kind of light. I think it irks a lot of people because no one's perfect. And I've I've always said, you know, to my family, if something happens to me, don't sugarcoat things I've been through or kind of just gloss over them because they were a part of me. They were a part of who I was. Um, and Oog was the same. He was human. And there's it's why I do respect his ex-girlfriend who's been one of the most vocal advocates in this case because she did him the service of 
discussing Oog in every facet of his life, the good and the bad. Um, he was human and he had a lot of experiences in 36 years and it is not victim blaming to say certain things about someone. Um, and it could also point in the direction of what ap- happened I just said happened. I'm starting to speak French now. What happened to Oog? Um, these are important because the way he lived his life could actually have led to his demise. Um, and you'd be doing him a disservice not to discuss all of the characteristics of his life. Oog was born in France, as I said, and he held dual French and US citizenship when he died. Oog's father is a man called Francois de la Plaza. Now, Francois does not speak any English. Um, when Oog first died and they had to come out to the States, they had to use an interpreter. Um, a lot of French people, you know, you assume because in Paris they're dealing with tourists a lot, a lot of them do, but in more kind of provincial areas, um, they don't as much. And that's totally normal because <laughs> some people speak other languages other than English, web sleuths people. And um, so Oog did because the younger generations tend to learn it. But a lot of older people don't and Francois did not. So he used an interpreter and it was very difficult when they came out. It's another thing you forget about when people have to go to a foreign country, how how difficult it would be. You have to bring in a French interpreter and a lot of those things get lost in translation. But I think Francois has done an amazing job of being an advocate for his son. And the sad thing is that he and France, um, Oog's mum, Marais, Oog was their only child. Um, so to lose him in this manner, it's just the end of it, um, the end of that lineage. And he's 36 and they, they won't be having any more children. Francois described Oog after his death as, quote, very open-minded, very tolerant to San Francisco Weekly in 2007. Oog was apparently a vegetarian. Um, he was sophisticated, as a lot of French people are. I love the French. Um, he was musical. He was self-taught with uh, music by ear, and he ultimately followed his career into sound engineering, and he never had a lesson in that. He was sensitive. He was artistic. He was creative. You can tell kind of by looking at him that he was that type. He was apparently a conscientious objector, very non-violent, um, and he hated the sight of blood, which is an important thing to keep in mind. He would grimace and turn away from it. Now, as I said, Oog's mum is Marais. <clears throat> His dad is Francois. And Oog seemed to meet people wherever he went. Um, every single person interviewed it's always his, they were a colleague, but they became a friend. They were someone he ran into, but they became a friend. He, as one of his friends says, he would initially kind of come off a bit funny, especially to Americans, because as one of his mates put it in the States, he was just French. He thought France was better than everyone. And the French do have that reputation. I've been to France. I work for a French company. I write a lot about France. Um, I love the French. Um, Web Sleuth's openly said, fuck the French, one guy, they're weak, they give up in war, that's always the thing they go back to, not that it's got anything to do with this case. Um, and they they think they're better than everyone. Um, they're aloof, they're rude. Um, and, yeah, they do come across as that and that is true when you go there. But that's because, as my French client always says to me, we take pride in our cities, you know, how we live, our lifestyle, our history, 
we're full of pride and I think that's so important and it's one of the reasons that I love France. <clears throat> At the time of his death, Oog had lived in the USA for eight years but it was long enough by that stage to gain citizenship because by this point he was a dual citizen, France and the United States. To describe Oog, he, um, <clears throat> not that it will mean anything to you, um, I've got a friend who's French and you heard his voice on the Narumi Kurosaki episode when he pronounced uh, Besançon for me, the place where she was killed and um, he's identical to him. It's, it's actually startling. Um, when I met him, I actually thought, oh my God. <laughs> The guy's living in Thailand. He didn't really die. Um, but uh, he's very French. There's no other real way to describe it. He is all thick, his eyebrows, dark, really thick, black eyebrows, dark hair, tall, um, not really tall, five foot nine, according to his autopsy. According to his autopsy, uh, 175 pounds, which is about 79 kilos. Slim guy, um, as the French tend to be. Um and very kind of sophisticated, always kind of dressed nicely, cut a little peak cap sometimes. His hair, sometimes he's got a shaved head. Other photos, over time, he's got longer hair. At the time he died, um, the autopsy said that his hair was, because it goes into every part of your body, you know, which I'll get into, it said it was about four inches long, so it was grown out. And there is a photo on his last night he, of what he, him drinking a pint. And you can see it coming out of his cap. Um, dark eyes, uh, very kind of uh, très sophisticated. I don't know what the word is for sophisticated. Um, très formidable. Uh, so he has quite an intense kind of look about him, but he's also got a really lovely smile in other ones, um, in other photos. Um, yeah, I, I can't really describe him, but I've put a picture of him up for the episode page if you're listening on Spotify and and um, I'll put one up for the second episode as well. Uh, there's a lot of photos for this case, so it's really important, I think, if you go and look at them after you listen to this episode, I will put up Oog's episode page pretty much immediately on unknownpassagepodcast.com, and I'm going to put all the photos I have. Um, the case is old. I've been able to scour them from forums, you know, official documentation. There's crime scene photos that are readily available out there, and just look if you've if you can handle blood, which I don't I don't have an issue with blood, but I'm just giving you a warning that they are gruesome. Um, the photos Oog's not in them, but the crime scene is the photos are really important to know the layout of the home. I've looked at floor plans, I've looked at Google Street Maps, I've looked at photos of the house, I've looked at listings, current listings to get current photos of the layout. Um, I've I've tried to do kind of everything. So when researching this, I came across public information probate documenta documentation for Oog. Essentially, these are all the paperwork you have to do. As I said earlier, when someone dies, whether or not they're dying overseas or not, but it made it extra complicated because it had to go to people in the in France. His father was essentially like his executor because he was single with no common law you know, partner and no next of kin. Um, so these things have to happen. And it seems that Francois, he's listed on all the documents. So I went there through all the documents and they're on an, a website for trellis law. Now you don't get to see the money that Oog had, although he had quite a, a large amount in his bank account uh, from years of working and working quite a high powered job. 
there are a lot of documents. A lot of them are just legal jargon. Um, every time someone changes an address, they have to update it. So there's updates up to a few years ago. Um, it was just sorting out his estate, essentially his life insurance, things like that. But you don't get access to the actual breakdown of how much money there was or anything like that. It's just uh, his parents filling out documentation, which is really sad because it's something that you don't think you never really think about having to deal with, but you do. So I found something very interesting that no one's ever mentioned in any coverage except for in this probate doc and it confused me that they hadn't mentioned it. Not that I think it's particularly compelling evidence or anything, but on a document completed by Oog's mother Moraine and filed in 2008, which was essentially just some basics, um, there's so many documents they have to fill out, it's unreal and it all seems just a lot of legal jargon, um, identifying like his next of kin and stuff. She writes, you know, her name, she's his mother. And then when was the last time he spoke to the decedent? Um, and then she wrote a week before his death. And then it asks, marriages of deceased, name of spouse and maiden name, date, place and manner of termination. So it's asking if Oog was ever married at any point in his life, whether he what the name of that person was, if so, um, the date they got married, the place and why it was, the marriage was terminated if it was. And she fills this out, um, which I found strange <laughs> because no one ever mentions that who seemed to be married at some point in his life. It seems that he was married when he was 28. The woman's name is Wendy. I'm not going to put her surname. And it says date, place. So she's written the 20th of May, 1998. Um, I don't know if she means that's when it got terminated or when they got married, but I believe that it's probably when the marriage happened. It was He was married for a short amount of time and then it ended. She writes it was in Paris they got married and she, she writes after manner of termination, divorce. No one ever mentions this. He was just, according to all documentation, a single guy chilling out, had an ex-girlfriend who I'll talk about, Melissa. She was American. Um, and they never mentioned this. And I just found that very strange. Maybe it was just a blip in his life where he got married for six months and it doesn't say how long he was married for and that it ended. Um, but it seems to line up with he's divorced and then he moves to the States. And it seems to be that he moved for like a fresh start. So it, it seems that in 1999, he then left France because he'd been working with some Americans at his company in France and they were talking up America and he found it really interesting and he thought that he might move there. So in 1999, he seemed to have moved to New York City and there he met a woman called Melissa Nix, who's incredibly important to the story. So keep the name Melissa in mind. Melissa was a journalist. She's worked at a number of different publications. She's still out there and she's still one of the most vocal proponents for answers for Oog. Um, and he met her at a party, according to Melissa. Um, she saw him and she thought he was, he kind of was spellbinding and she went up to him and just asked him out straight away and they got together. And they lived together in New York City in Brooklyn for four years. Uh, and then they would break up and then they would get back together and then they'd break up for like a year and then they'd try again. And this is one of the problems with the coverage of this case. In Web Sleuths, they have major issues with Melissa and I want to get that out of the way really early, like hatred towards her. Um, they write 
back in when the thread was active, 2009, 2010, they would write openly to her talking about how none of her stories add up. There's a lot of holes in them. She says one thing about them breaking up years before and then she says, no, we broke up uh, just six months before he died. We decided to give it another shot. She'd been living in New York City. He had moved over to San Francisco by this point. And then at the start of 2007, six months before he died, she apparently said that she had moved to San Francisco from New York across the country six months before to give it another go because they'd always stayed friends, always been in touch. And it had fizzled out almost immediately and she hadn't seen him since. And this is one of the problems with the coverage from the San Francisco Gate, the Times, all of that. Because Melissa, and I'm not coming down hard on her, but there are questions, I guess, that need to be answered and need clarification, which I'll talk about because she would then jump on this blogger forum where people were accusing her of stuff. And I'll read it to you later, but basically she would say in her defence she'd she just went off on them, which I get because they were so nasty towards her. Um, and she would answer questions that they had about how did you find out who died if you weren't with him? Did the police check her alibi? Things like that. Because she said that at the time that Oog died in June 2007, she was living in San Francisco. She hadn't seen him for six months. That's what she told the police in the police report. And that she was in Virginia visiting family at the time that Oog died and that she was notified via phone by friends, mutual friends, essentially. And I'll read you her response from a blogger forum because she kind of went into bat for herself. Now, I get why they have issues because she kind of puts herself front and centre. They point out that there's weird body language between Francois de la Plaza and her at different rallies when he came out to America, um, that he kind of pushes her away like at one point or just, seems suspicious of her. Um, but I'll get into all that later because that's just another part of this whole thing. Initially, I kind of went into this thinking Melissa's amazing and she's done so much for this family. But one thing I will say for these web sleuthers is that they do seem to pick apart people's statements, official statements they've made better than trained journalists do. And that's really concerning when citizen citizen journalists are doing what big wigs at the San Francisco Chronicle and San Francisco Gate who are on six figures are not doing. Um, and that's true journalism, you know, um, picking that apart and asking questions and getting answers. Um, now, I do want to say from the outset, I don't believe that Melissa had anything to do with this. You may disagree. I have had some strange thoughts that I'll probably talk about in part two. But basically the web sleuthers issue is that she seemed obsessed with Oog, like she's just how involved she is, has been she has been in the case since it happened. But my answer is, well, why if she did something to him, would she be campaigning for answers? She'd be wanting to bury this whole thing. And that's that's only one reason why I don't. I think she really loved him and was heartbroken by their breakup, it seemed, which I'll get into, that Oog liked women and he wanted to sow his wild oats, which I mean I used to think that was okay for men at all ages, but at like 36, it's getting a bit lame. Like by that point, I've started to think in my old age. Um, and I can talk on that because, you know, I 
kind of lived like Oog, <laughs> like back in the day a little bit, um, minus the cocaine. So um, I, I do totally understand like kind of what mine said he was in this kind of bachelor lifestyle. But basically when Oog in 1999, um, when he moved to New York, he met Melissa. They would stay together for four years, according to her. And then, you know, there's a few issues with the timeline there. And ultimately, he would move to San Francisco around 2003 because at the time that he died, official documentation says that he had his apartment for around three, four years. He'd been there for quite a while and it was just him on the lease. It was just his apartment. So they'd always stayed in touch and back and forth and they'd fly out to see each other or whatever. And then Melissa had made this massive jump to go out to the other side of the country, change her life and get a job out there to be with him and it had fizzled out and she kind of brushes over this a little bit, which is a bit of an issue because as most women have put it like in forums and stuff, you she'd be devastated, like, but she doesn't seem to make out like she is. And it'd be really hard to talk about an ex, like they're having sex with lots of women, which I'll be talking about shortly with Oog. I wouldn't be able to just sit there and see that. And maybe they did stop contact because she couldn't witness that you know, because she was in love with him. And it's it's clear no matter what happened, she, she was really in love with him. Um, so anyway, when he moved to San Francisco, he got a job with this company Leapfrog, which makes early, you know, early development toys. I'm sure half of you have, have got kids. I don't know if Leapfrog still exists, but we had them out here, like they imported them, exported them out here. Early development toys for kids and toddlers and babies and things like that. And toys that make sounds and kind of teaching early development. Um, and he was a sound engineer. There's, you know, the sounds that the toys make and things like that, they kind of create them, which you never really think about that as a job, but it is a job. But when he moved to San Francisco, um, obviously San Francisco has its issues and I've decided not to get into those too much in regards to just the whole issue with how it's ended up. I just want to talk about crime in particular in San Francisco and in relation to Oog's case um, because it'll just get too off the trail. But the city is a mecca for expats and foreigners. In fact, I looked up how many of San Francisco residents are born outside the USA and it's 34.2% of them, which is a huge amount. So obviously you're going to meet so many. I looked up how many Australians live in San Francisco and there's like 77,000. Like that can't be right. Out of 800,000 people who live there, one in, almost one in eight is an Australian. That statistic can't be right. So at the time of his death, Oog was working at the company Leapfrog as a sound engineer. And on the day he died in June 2007, he had received, June 1st, 2007 was a Friday, and he had received a well-earned promotion that he had been working towards. He was on really good money, not sure what the promotion was, but Oog was clearly thrilled. He was stashing away money. I read a few that said he had like a hundred grand saved in the bank, which is probably right, but that's not what goes towards the reward. I read that the reward is coming from his life insurance payout. Also, at one point, Melissa says that the guy had a hundred grand in the bank. Now, I don't know how she knew that at the time that she said it, but he did. Um, and maybe she just heard that on the grapevine after he died. Um, and life was going really well. His friend Neil, who worked with Oog at Leapfrog and was interviewed on the 48 Hours documentary, he talks about how initially when he started working with Oog, it took a lot to warm to Oog. His quote was, he was just French, unquote, which 
He kind of then laughed and he said everything with Oog was the French version's better, French music's better, he liked French techno, French food's better, you know, he was comparing everything and saying, you know, fuck this American shit. But like everyone, Neil said very quickly, he warmed to him very quickly and not only were they colleagues then but they became fast friends outside and would regularly hang out. Neil was one of the last people to see Uga live and the day after he died, he had plans with him to go motorbike riding because both of them had motorbikes and loved riding, you know, around the Bay Area and going on day trips. And so Neil would be one of the first ones who would kind of get an inkling that something was wrong when Oog didn't turn up to their aforementioned plans. Oog also had a great place to call home. His apartment is very important to this story. It's pretty much central next to Oog. Um, it's located at 462 Linden Street, L-I-N-D-E-N. If you want to jump on Google Street View while you're listening, this is so helpful. I've looked at so many floor, like f- photos of this property, walked around the local area, Google Street View from over different periods, see how it changes, looked at different crime scene photos, photos of the cops out the front to get an idea of this. And I'm going to try to describe it as as best I can for you to get an idea if you're not looking at photos, but I will put the photos on the website, unknownpassagepodcast.com, but you can also just Google Oog Della Plaza and then go to the images tab. So Linden Street is in a neighbourhood in San Francisco called Hayes Valley. Linden Street is essentially a one-way street, kind of back street. It's very kind of peppered with these very cute little buildings. Uh, San Francisco is kind of renowned for a lot of its Victorian architecture. It's a cosy little, very narrow one-way street where essentially cars are parked on one side of the street and you'd have to give way if you, you know, you'd have to, it's not a two-lane street, you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, And he, it's a kind of trendy and lively area, Hayes Valley, but it does back onto some um, less desirable neighbourhoods. And it also backs onto a neighbourhood that Oog and his friends would regularly go out in, which is the lower Haight area, which is the lower portion of an area you may be familiar with called Haight-Ashbury. Oog lived in what's called a triplex and it reminds me a lot of the El Kite setup where you've essentially got a bunch of different apartments all in a row where the, the doors are right next to each other. So it's a property, It's there's a little, um, this is why it's important to look at the pictures, there's a five steps that go up to a little, uh, they call it a stoop, we'd call it like a porch area and then you've got bang, 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 three apartments next to each other with very little space between the doors. I'm talking like probably six inches between each door. They're right next to each other. So sound travels, which is another thing to keep in mind. Um, each one seems to be from listings, a one bedroom apartment. Um, I'll read you a listing shortly. It's a, it's a kitchen, a living room, bathroom. There's no real outside area. Um, there's kind of, from photos I could find, it's a shared tiny, I wouldn't even call it a courtyard out the back that the three share, but they do have a front door and a back door, which is essentially a kitchen door because the kitchen's at the back of the property that goes out the side. So you can see all this in the photos. Um, So you can also at the front, because Oog had a motorbike, there's at the time it was like a little indent 
set back from the footpath or the sidewalk, as you guys call it over there. And the, he had his motorbike parked there. Now, it's very funny because most sources do not mention Oog's motorbike. And I always remembered from early times I looked into this that he had a motorbike. And so I had to Google Oog de la Plaza motorbike. And then I was like, oh, maybe they don't call it a motorbike in the States. Maybe it's motorcycle because I've heard that before. So I, I Googled that. And ultimately, it was Web Sleuths that was talking about it and showed, you know, the they linked the publications that discussed the fact that he had a motorbike, but they never really in these major ones talk about his bike. And if you theorise that what happened to Oog was a result of someone messing with his motorbike, which could be true, then I think it's really important because it's right there in the police crime scene photos when they've roped off the scene out the front. His motorbike is parked directly outside what is his front door and front window. So he would come out his front door. There's the five steps that go down. You then curve around to the left and there's like this indent where his bike was parked. So if Oog looked out his front window, he'd be able to see his motorbike like right there to check on it. Um, so you can Google 462 Linden Street and you can look at past listings. It is not currently available, although it was very strange to see that it was available in 2020. And when you look at the current photos that they took for the listing, I just thought it was just a, just crazy to me that you can look at crime scene photos from 2007 where there's just blood all over the kitchen bench, all over the floors, the walls. And then you look at these listings from 2020 and 2018 and it's the same kitchen bench, nothing's changed, it's just been cleaned. And you wonder if the people who rented it ever Googled the address because they've done a really good SEO job of knocking anything about Oog down Google, I noticed. And this is my job, like my paid job to notice these things. You have to get to like page three of Google when you Google 462 Linden Street in order to find an article about Oog because it's been dominated at the top by listings from Zillow and things like that, different kind of real estate agents and property managers and stuff like that. But I just thought side by side, I'm looking at a kitchen bench covered in blood, like a fire hydrant of blood spatter. And then in the next breath, I'm reading a listing like this, quote, this is a convenient apartment in a small building on a quiet street. It is the heart of Hayes Valley, just a half block from Octavia Park. Although you will be near everything and near transportation to get everywhere else, you will be secluded on a peaceful street. It has a nice front room, a sleeping room, which is a bedroom, I don't know why they'd call it that, and a separate kitchen, hardwood floors, parking for bicycle or small motorbike, three closets and a basement for storage, owner pays for water and trash, cats and quiet dogs okay, coinless washer and dryer, rent controlled and owner managed, move in now, um, and that was from rent, monthly rent negotiable, but actually... Hoog's apartment, the last listing was for $3,200 a month. That just seems insane to me. But San Francisco is so expensive. But for what it was, it's not even a modern apartment. It just, them's Melbourne prices. Like it just, it was crazy. Like I'm so sorry for you guys who are dealing with that, but you're not on like a high wage, hourly wage. Like it's just... You can see why people are moving away from these cities. Um, but what I noticed in that, that it's not mentioned, so I had to go off and try to find that, was they discuss in other listings a basement, which I presume you access 
from the back kind of courtyard area, which goes into what is that uh, coinless washer dryer. Um, because in pictures of Oog's apartment, there's no laundry, it doesn't seem like. So I believe it was probably shared between the triplex. Um, also, they go to great pains to point out that it's rent controlled. How is that rent controlled? I kind of was learning about what rent controlled is. I was like, they were like, this is really competitive compared to other prices in the area in Hayes Valley. So when I looked up what the average price is, it's four, four and a half thousand a month for a one bedroom apartment. It's like not even a modern one. It's just, you just never be able to get a foot in a door, which is what most people say about living there. Most people say you, you have to live in an apartment, you have to rent, you'd never be able to buy property there. Um, but according to Hoodline, Oog had lived in this apartment for between three and four years. Now, the newer listings have that little kind of setback part on the pay, on the footpath uh, for the motorbikes or your bike or whatever because it's the only place you can – it's on-street parking. There's no garage or anything. It's very, very narrow. Everyone is completely boxed in. Um, it's everyone's wall-to-wall. When Oog lived there, the crime scene photos out the front show his bike there and it's just open to the street. There's no there's no fence in front of it, anything like that. The newer ones, it seems that the landlord has installed a fence in front of it, obviously to protect with rising crime and stuff to protect whoever parks their bike or motorbike there because it'd be so easy just to kind of... Um, just wheel a bike away from it, um, especially when Oog lived there. Now, obviously, he had a motorbike, so it's a little bit different. But I think he would be – I'd be a little bit paranoid about even having a motorbike there. Now, just to go back to give you a brief introduction to San Francisco, obviously, San Francisco is a city of about 800,000 people in Northern California in what's called the Bay Area. It is the 17th most populous city by land size in the United States and it spans about 46 square miles. Um, It's very densely populated, uh, population versus the size of San Francisco. In true crime circles, San Francisco is arguably one of the most famous places in the United States. It's obviously notorious for the still unsolved Zodiac case and obviously the San Francisco Chronicle, which is one of the leading newspapers in San Francisco was very central to that case because that's, if you believe that those letters came from the Zodiac, that's who he sent it to, Paul Avery, who Robert Downey Jr. plays in the movie, who was a journalist at the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, Obviously, Richard Ramirez went up there and um, he killed a couple up in San Francisco uh, when he would kind of go between LA and San Fran, the Golden State Killer and... The Doodler, which I found it's just a really interesting case if you ever want to look into that. Um, I've listened to quite a few podcasts on The Doodler and although the name may be off-putting, it's because he was drawing on a piece of paper and he would draw his victims. But in cultural circles, you may think of San Francisco, you know, are you going to San Francisco? Um, It's famous for being the centre of the hippie movement of the 1960s in the United States. Obviously, Charles Manson would flit up there back and forth um, and he would be drawn like many to the Haight-Ashbury region, which is kind of synonymous with the hippie movement. At its height of the flower power movement, 15,000 hippies called 
Haydash Brew home. And Haydash Brew is just a hop, skip and a jump really from where Oog was living in San Francisco. Today, San Francisco is categorised by its very identifiable Victorian style buildings. One such famous strip of buildings is called the Painted Ladies and it's often used in TV shows like the intro to Full House from memory. Um, They're very colourful. When you look at pictures, they're all when you Google San Francisco, it's very um, pretty pictures and it all looks very nice and it is a beautiful city and that's what makes its downfall and what's happening there so so tragic. Um, but I'm not going to get into why that is, but clearly that is local policies and if someone doesn't understand that or believe that, then I don't know what to tell you. Um, it happens all over the world and they all have the same thing in common. Tourists can visit Alcatraz Island, the Golden Gate Bridge, Union Square and Fisherman's Wharf. Physically, it is a beautiful city. It is a beautiful location. A lot of people who go there say that that is the tragedy of it. You know, it's location on the bay and the views and what it offers. The fact that it has been just in this kind of... It has just been sucked into being one of the top destinations, you know, for homelessness in the United States. It has a long-running issue with crime that dates back decades. Um, It's got higher theft and robbery rates than almost anywhere in the United States. That's a statistical fact. Murder, not so much, um, but theft, robbery and assault are much higher than many cities of the same population size across the United States. The city's property crime rate um, is currently 41% above the national average, which is something to keep in mind. And it was experiencing this explosion at the time that Oog died. And that's why I kind of want you to keep in mind that property crime is a massive issue there. Um, according to the Hoover Institute, San Francisco, San Franciscans, which are locals to the city, face about a one in 16 chance every year of being a victim of property or violent crime, which almost puts it on par with New Orleans, which is scary. And you can see why a lot of people are leaving for the safety of their families. That's, you know, obviously property crime is if you can own a property or a home. The price of property in San Francisco is out of control. And if you live in the city centre, most expats state that they are limited to apartment dwelling and renting for the rest of their life. Apartments in Oog's neighbourhood are currently, I've noticed there's a drop in prices because people are leaving and there's more available than there was about a few years ago. Um, even just a low-level apartment in Oog's neighbourhood, you won't be getting one for less than $2,500 a month, which just seems astronomical to me considering not many people aren't. it Here maybe in Australia, but when you're earning $30 an hour, but I don't understand how people can afford it over there. Um So that's just a little bit about San Francisco and I will be peppering in more as we kind of go. So Oog is living in Hayes Valley and um, he really loved that neighbourhood by all accounts. It was, he could walk to so many bars that he really liked and was a regular at. Um, He, on his doorstep, you know, he had a plethora of bars and restaurants. When you look up Hayes Valley, it's apparently they say, or, you know, TripAdvisor said, it's kind of the shopping mecca of San Francisco when people say where to go shopping. Um, it seems to be Hayes Valley. There's heaps of cool bars and restaurants and 
just, you know, within a half mile of his home, he would hit the lower height uh, where there'd be tons of clubs that are open late and bars. And a lot of his friends seemed to live in this area as well. So they would regularly meet up at the local bars, cafes and clubs. But where he lived was good because it was a half mile away from these bars and clubs, but it's this setback, narrow street with nice neighbours, you know, and um, not not too much noise that travelled there um, and kind of set back. It's, it wouldn't really be a thoroughfare for people unless I believe they were walking home after a night out, which is probably something to keep in mind for this when you're theorising. According to the San Francisco Gate, Hayes Valley is a hip boutique heavy area. Elizabeth Nolan wrote in 2013 for Hoodline about Hayes Valley, quote, residents of Hayes Valley have often regarded Linden as one of the most charming thoroughfares in the neighbourhood. It meets with Octavia at Patricia's Green, offering a small haven for the kids, couples, dog lovers and tourists enamoured with our unique atmosphere. Um, the Hayes Valley of 2007 was not that different from the neighbourhood we call home today. The Octavia or Octavia off-ramp had been completed and a tremendous amount of growth had transformed the area from its once sketchy past. The flourishing community attracted a new world of working artists and budding families. While crime is no stranger to many of the residents, the violent assault on Oog sent shockwaves through the neighbourhood and across the ocean, unquote. So Oog at this point in his life was in a financial position to do more of what he wanted. He was contemplating and openly talking about buying a home in Buenos Aires, Argentina, because before Oog, or, you know, after he left France and while he was living in the States, he'd travelled quite a lot. I mean, he'd been to South America a fair bit and he loved Buenos Aires. He fell in love with it for whatever reason. And he was looking at buying a home there, which makes sense to me because, you know, value for money, how far he would get with the money that he had stashed away. And he was actively looking for properties. Now, no one says whether or not he planned to move there full time. I very much doubt it. Remote work in 2007 really wasn't on the docket for people like it is today. It wasn't really a possibility. I believe that he was probably going to buy it as an investment property or a holiday home for when he would, you know, visit Buenos Aires and it's a good investment for him. Oog loved motorbike riding, as I said. Um, my earliest memories of the case in, revolved around him owning a motorbike and then when I was looking into it, no publications mentioned it at all other than the fact that he had plans the day oh, he died, essentially, to go motorbike riding with his friend Neil. And so I felt like I was kind of tripping a little bit and that's when I went back and Googled for any information of motorbike or motorcycle and I found them discussing it in Web Sleuths in 2009. Um, granted, I don't usually use these forums for the podcast anymore, um, especially not for research, but the only one of the only good things about that is that they have definitive information that they link in that and they're pretty strict about that. So I'll be using some throughout. They also discuss some interesting things in the 48 Hours episode that 48 Hours literally has on the episode that they never bring up at all, which is really worrying. Like it went past editors and journalists and people watching it and no one thought, hey, what's that car passing at that exact moment? Um, so Uga had his motorbike and I've talked about where he would park it. He would regularly take it out with friends. Um, so this is where we start to get into a little a few things about Oog that may point to what happened to him. And I'm not judging him at all. He was a single guy. He can do whatever he wants um, as long as it's with consensual people, which 
I believe that it was by all accounts, um, then it's no one's business. Um, so Melissa told the New York Times in 2009 about her ex, quote, Oog was a sensitive person, an intellectual and a philosopher, and he was French, so he had a certain amount of gravitas, but he was someone who saved life, unquote. Now, she also would go on to describe Oog as promiscuous um, to the San Francisco gate, and she has kind of echoed that. And I think that is probably true because this is backed up by most of his male friends who I believe he probably was the one who they probably knew, you know, what he was up to and he would regularly kind of joke about it and stuff like that. So Mark, his boss at Leapfrog, who also became a friend like everyone else seemed to, he told 48 Hours how Oog would be so good at picking up chicks and this is one of the things why when I read the autopsy reports and the police documents, another thing that no one ever brings up, which I'll be getting into. And I just had massive issue with this. So Melissa said at one point and other people that Oog would do coke on and off, which is normal, like whatever. It wasn't interfering with his life in any way, but it can have like depressive aspects to it, long-term use. And obviously the mental, the mental side of it, um, and the physical side of it as well, the effects on your body. Um, but Marky's boss kind of talked to 48 hours about how he always kind of, when they were out and about at a bar or whatever, he would witness Oog picking up women with ease. And Mark essentially said that he would really amp up the French thing and he would um, kind of go up to a woman and uh, be like, hello, I'm Oog. And he would really like, and they'd be like, what? And all of a sudden he's like mysterious and, you know, sexy and um, kind of foreign. It's all very exciting. Um, and he would be like, I'm French. And, you know, um, he, he'd kind of, use lines like about French kissing and things like that. The lines are kind of written for the French when you think about it because condoms are also called French letters as well. Women were smitten with Oog and he had no issues meeting women. He would regularly hit online dating, which it was not apps at the time. This was before Tinder and all that. This was 2007. It was more like probably Plenty of Fish um, or what are the other ones? maybe RSVP or I'm not sure what they have over there, but he would be on those as well. So he would use those, but he'd also be able to pick up women pretty easily. Um, but it seems that he wasn't looking for a like actual relationship. He was just looking to have sex, which, you know, he's a young guy. I mean, he's 36, so it's not like he's 23. So it kind of starts to get a bit sad, but I've known a lot of guys in my life and, you know, I know 50 year olds that are like that. Um, so yeah, but this, you know, he wouldn't have any issues, basically. Now, Melissa also admitted that Oog would take cocaine on occasion. One publication would say on an on the occasion. Another one would say regularly at one point when they were together where it became a problem. This is one of the things that web sleuths have an issue with this. Well, which one is it? He would go out to bars, pick up women, sleep with them, and then, you know, bail the Dennis system from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, and one of the most problematic things, I guess, about him, but it's true and that's what I'm talking about, warts at all, um, would was that he would sleep with married women and he had no qualms if they were married. He didn't really care. Um, his friend Christoph is interviewed on 48 Hours and they say, any women? Yep, 
married women, yep. And then the woman, uh, Maureen Mayer, who's the journalist, goes, your wife? Like, as in, would he, would he do that to you? And he goes, yeah. Like, ooh. he wanted to get his end in. Um, it, the end game was getting his leg over. And the important thing for the, to note with talking about this is a lot of people theorise that what happened to Oog was at the hands, if it was murder, of someone who he did something to their wife or he was catfished by someone on an online dating who turned up and it was a man, it wasn't a woman, and that's been known to happen before or a husband of a wife that Oog had been having an affair with turned up. Now, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of an active affair at the time. He was going out on dates and he had one earlier in the night before he died, which I'll talk about. Um, So I just thought that was important. Now, the importance of reading the autopsy um, is vast, obviously, um, and it's long and detailed. But the reason that it was so important in this case is that I found evidence that Oog was getting prescribed Viagra by his doctor, and no one has ever brought that up. Now, it's right there in the autopsy, and essentially what happened with this case was it boils down to the family thinks that the cops... ruled it a suicide instantly so that they didn't have another murder on the books because San Francisco was having just, they just have an out-of-control unsolved murder rate, which is true. They've got a really low solvability rate. The police side is that they looked at everything, they contacted everyone, um, they spoke to people and they decided that they're not sure what happened. It's ruled as undetermined. It could have been killing himself or it could have been someone killing Oog, but they've never ruled it either way and it's still open. But the family and the friends basically say, you know, they didn't know anything about him and from the early days they were just focusing on his mental mindset and not on... The neighbours said they didn't say, did you hear anything? They immediately said, was he depressed? Like they didn't, and which is an issue, you know. But in the autopsy reports, they say that they contacted his doctor, they name his doctor, um, which they do with autopsies to get any kind of record of medications they may be on or history of mental illness. There was no history of depression, anything like that on his documents. But what was there, which the doctor, um, the doctor basically wrote back to them, whatever's in the notes is there, but I can't tell you anything from memory. So what was in the notes was Viagra being prescribed. Oog didn't seem to regularly go to the doctor. So this could have been a while back. And then there's no real mention of it again. And no one ever mentions it. San Francisco Gate, Chronicle, Web Sleuths don't even mention it. Um, And that's why I was like, whoa, when I read that, because I was like, why would a 36 year old guy need that? Like a normally functioning guy. And I don't want to sound crude or anything, but when I looked at the autopsy, it said that he's not that you can tell because he's under autopsy, but he's he had normally formed genitals and it, there didn't seem to be any issue with his body. In fact, his body was in like pretty pristine health and I'll talk about that with the autopsy results other than obviously the stab wounds that killed him. So I just thought that's interesting in comparison to the cocaine use um, because long-term cocaine use can be a bit of a boner killer. Um, and maybe that was what Oog was experiencing. Now I will talk about the toxicology results after I talk about Oog's death, but basically they came back all clear. But the issue with that is that certain drugs, coke and all that, they're out of your system within days. So it doesn't mean that he hadn't done it for years. It just means he hadn't done it for a few days or a couple of days. 
he had they were clear for everything except ethanol alcohol um, because he had a 0.1 um, blood alcohol level, which here to drive a car, it's 0.05 is the limit. So he was twice over that. But I know in America they're a bit higher, so it's like 0.08. So he wasn't shit-faced. He wasn't like off his head or anything. I believe he'd had like four or five drinks or something like that when this all happened. And I'm saying all this because as it comes to me, I don't want to forget it. It's all in my notes, but... I just don't want to miss anything in this case. So I just thought that was interesting. Now, please don't reach out to me like talking about your experiences taking Viagra because of long-term coke use unless it is in relation to this. But there's no evidence that Oog couldn't get it up. In fact, he was so confident he was going home with women all the time and you'd think that that would kind of be a confidence killer or he wouldn't be doing that so much if that was the case. Um, I don't know if Viagra just, he was, he maybe took it a couple of times so he could keep going for longer. It's the first time I've had to talk to you guys like this. I'm sorry, but it's a fact. No one ever talks about Oog being a particularly big um, pot smoker and it was negative for THC, his toxicology, and that usually stays in your system for a few months. So it doesn't seem that he was into that. He was more into the uppers. Uh, the pingers, as we would say here. So San Francisco has an epidemic of crime, homelessness and drug abuse, obviously. Um, it's rampant, it's a fact, and I don't think children should need chaperones to get off their school buses in case they get attacked by someone wielding a heroin, a syringe of heroin. Um, you can look that up. That's a system that they now have to have to accommodate these things. And I've got a pretty hard line approach to it um, through personal experience of people close to me, obviously, if you've listened to the podcast, I don't tolerate it. Um, but when Oog died, crime was exploding and the San Francisco Police Department, SFPD, was overrun. In fact, 2007 saw 100 murders in San Francisco, which had been the highest rate since the 1990s. Oog is not one of those 100 because he's listed as undetermined, so he doesn't really fall into any basket. This is why I view Oog's case as not just a tragedy of the loss of a promising young man, but a socioeconomic and anthropological failure on behalf of local policies. But what is more concerning is the low solved rate of crime in San Francisco, which Hoodline discusses. 2007 had the Quote, 2007 had the unfortunate distinction of seeing 100 murders in San Francisco, the highest number of any year in the new millennium. Only 25 of those 100 were moved to prosecution, and this number does not include Oogs due to his status as a suspicious death. The fact has led to many to believe the investigators in Oog's case were more concerned with keeping the murder rate down than they were with bringing him justice. These numbers also reflect the inundation the SFPD were experiencing at the time of Oog's attack, unquote. So a lot of people think that they were ruling what were clearly homicides as suicides to get them off the books, which is fair enough because a lot of their bonuses and things um, – and the funding they get comes from the solvability rate. And that is really low. The national average of cases going to prosecution is 53% of cases. So solving a case and getting it to trial. In San Francisco, it's 25 out of 100. It's 25%. Um, and you should expect more as a citizen when your people who are on like big six-figure salaries, because I the salaries of some of the people involved in this case are openly available online and I looked them up. Um, 
And I know a lot of it's overtime. I was actually shocked by how much of their salary was overtime. So I give them a bit of grace in respect to how just burnt out a lot of the cops would be. And normally I back cops, but in this case, I'm, I usually back them because they've got a hard job and people don't understand what they have to go through on a daily basis, what they have to see, what they have to experience, the abuse they get. Um, imagine going to work every day and just being abused morning till night and then going to bed. A lot of people don't think about it like that. And of course there's bad apples. Um, at some point I'll be doing an Australian case with one of the worst cops, corrupt cops ever. Um, and obviously the last few years I've started to question a lot of the cops and they're kind of whether a lot of them are sociopaths, um, I've started to question that in Australia and overseas, whether it draws psychotic cops. Um, I was talking about this with someone yesterday or it creates them. Um, and that's the argument. But Oog was in a quieter area that's adjacent to an area called the Western Edition, which is rough. And in order to walk on the night he died home from where he was at a bar, um, walk home three quarters of a mile home. It's about a 10, 15 minute walk. Apparently he would have to walk through a pretty shifty area, which someone referred to who I'll talk about a private investigator that was hired by the De La Plaza family. He said that after hours, the night people come out, which is a really good way to put it. Cause we have same in every city. Um, you see things at three in the morning in certain neighborhoods here that you just, it's like another world, but Oog would then hit He's, you know, he lived on this quiet side of Hayes Valley. Um, and so by the time he hit that, he would be safe. And we do know he got home that night and we'll talk about why. Now, finally, after all of that, we're going to talk about the night that he died. And I'm not going to apologise for going into so much detail on all of this because it's the one chance I get to do it. And because there is just so much that has been unsaid about this case um, and so much that people just ignore or don't understand or publications have been told to ignore. Journalists have, you know, their advertisers are backed by certain policies, <laughs> uh, certain political persuasions who are kind of like, you know, just ignore that part of it. And that's an issue that I struggle with every single day in my life in regards to sussing out information, what I believe, looking at both sides, understanding the political motivations of um, different people, different publications, things like that. And that's something that I kind of want to pass on to you guys. June 1st, 2007, the start of summer, obviously, but according to most people who live in San Francisco, they don't really get a summer. And if they do, it's in August. I looked up the historical average. I couldn't get the weather on this particular day, but Oog was wearing like a shirt and sneakers and jeans and a hat and stuff. And they say the historical average um, in June is only around 70 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, I think it's around 20 degrees Celsius, um, if I can kind of guess. It's it's kind of like a winter day in Australia, um, but it's the start of summer and it's a bit warmer. So um, this was obviously a great day for Oog. He got his promotion at Leapfrog, uh, something he'd worked hard for. He then had lunch and played pool with his friend Neil, the one who said that he kind of didn't warm to Oog a few years before when he met him at Leapfrog, but then they became fast friends and they would regularly go motorbike riding and it was Friday, so Friday night going into Saturday morning, he had the whole weekend ahead of him. He had a date lined up for early on the Friday night, I guess, for dinner. Um, and Oog was kind of high on life, uh, which is really important to note. 
Now, this is where sources, again, differ on things. They talk about how he had a date earlier that night with a girl and then other sources say that he had one planned for later that night. But I believe that it was what 48 Hours says because Neil literally said it to the camera on 48 Hours and he heard it straight from Oog when he turned up. So Oog's friends were all out at a bar that night in the lower hate area, around half a mile to three quarters of a mile from Oog's place. And earlier that night, kind of maybe after dinner for a drink or for dinner, I'm not entirely sure, Oog met up with a woman that he'd met online. Can't tell you what platform he'd met her on. He'd never met her before and it was just kind of like a casual drink. Not kind of a couple of hours later, he turned up where his mates, including Neil, uh, were at a bar not far away. And he said that the Neil essentially says that the Oog said the date was a bit of a lemon, like it was a bit of a fizzer. They didn't really gel and they were just going to stay friends. I doubt he meant that. Like he was like, yeah, let's stay friends. And then you never hear from them again. Um, But he told Neil that, and he was just like, it was a bit, you know, meh, there was no real sparks. And they wrapped it up and he met up with his mates later for some drinks. He was probably hoping that he'd meet a woman that he had a bit more of a spark with. And he was hitting on women that night as well, which was standard. Um, the friends that were with him that night, uh, guys and girls um, from work and just friends that he'd accrued along the way living in the area, uh, said that he was jovial and lively that night. And they all ended up at this bar called Underground SF, which is in um, not very far from Oog's place, about half a mile, three quarters of a mile in Lower Haight. I looked it up, it is still there. Um, it seems to be up and coming techno and dance DJs. Uh, it's a bit of a, it's very, there's a place like that in Melbourne. It's, it's very kind of low mood lighting. Can't really see a whole lot and a lot of, um, that kind of thing. Sorry, cinnamon. So it was a fun and memorable night for all. His friend, um, Marin, who's a, a woman, she told 48 hours, uh, quote, he was laughing. He was smiling. He was hitting on girls classic oog, unquote. And one of them snapped kind of a picture of him across the room and he was drinking a pint and just kind of watching the festivities happen in front of him. So the best part about where oog lived, obviously, after a heavy night was he could walk home very easily. And he didn't have any issues with that for years. He would be able to get home. There's no point to him getting a cab. There was no Uber at the time when he could just walk. It's not like money would be an issue. It's just stretch your legs, sober up a bit. Um, It would take Oog around 10 minutes and there are issues with that timeline. Um, A few issues that Web Sleuths points out, which is true. And I find that when I... I don't really drink anymore, but when I used to, like I generally actually walk quicker when I've had a few drinks um, and I'm on my own trying to get home. But I don't know if Oog was kind of sauntering home and it took him a bit longer this time. But the underground SF bar is around half a mile from Oog's apartment. So it would take about 10 minutes, they believe, police believe, and friends said. He would head home, have a drunken snack, fall into bed and have the entire weekend ahead of him. Motorbiking with Neil the next day would be one of the things that he had planned. So he left his friends around quarter to two in the morning, 1.45. 
SF Bar was closing down, I believe, around two. Um, and as they all kind of spilled out, there's a couple of sources that say that Neil, who had a girlfriend, said, do you want to come have pizza with me and my girlfriend, who was there? And Oog said, no, I'm going to go and find some cocaine. Now, that's only mentioned in a couple of sources, but then on 48 Hours, that's not mentioned at all when Neil's actually talking about it. And then in the SF gate, they have the fact that as he left, Neil said that he joked that he was going to go find a woman to sleep with. And that was a quote from Neil. Now, I don't know if memories are kind of blurred or whether he said both and publications have just picked and chose what they want to include. I think it's kind of important. But either way, in both instances, it seems that Oog send them in like a funny joking way as they spilled out of the front door. What are you going to do, Oog? I'm going to go find a woman or um, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to go find some coke kind of thing. But I think what he said, it's I, I think it's important and it's important to keep in mind because many a true word is said in jest and that kept coming back to me over and over researching this. So then Oog set off towards his apartment despite the fact that he said he was going to go find a woman. We know that he made it to his apartment because there is a security camera on Linden Street a couple of doors down from Oog's on the side of his apartment that looks onto the street. There's an issue with that in that the way that it is positioned, it doesn't capture the stoop area of his apartment or his front door. It literally just has, and I've got pictures of this and you can look them up, the pictures of where it is positioned. You see Oog walk in front of it and he's like a black figure. It's not a modern camera at all. It is blurry. It's dark. It's motion detected. He doesn't set off the motion detector. He's kind of illuminated only by a distant street light and all he is is like a silhouette. Now, all of his friends and Melissa say it's definitely Oog. They know like the way he walks and I believe it is as well. You can see enough to know that he's on his own and he's like two steps from his front door and we know he got home. Um, now, he walks in kind of around 2.06am, which if you consider that he left his mates around 1.45 and it's a 10-minute walk home, there might be a 10-minute gap where you wonder what he did. I don't think this is a massive issue. Could have stopped off to do a wee on the side of the road like men tend to do. I saw in his autopsy he didn't have much in his bladder, which he could have gone to the toilet. <clears throat> you just don't know. Um, but he made it home. He could have stopped to talk to someone or his mates could have been off by five, 10 minutes. But I don't see that as a massive issue. He had a cell phone. It's not a smartphone. I want to say that like early on because that will come into play. It was 2007. Looks like a bit of kind of an older one and definitely not a smartphone model or an iPhone or anything like that. But this camera... Essentially, you see him on one frame and then boom, he's gone. And the reason that this is, and Web Sleuths was helpful in this instance, was there was an expert in security cameras in there who said it seems to be such an old camera and such a shitty quality camera and just there to deter people who could be stealing stuff. It acts as a deterrent. It seems to be um, two frames a second, which means if you know the Jennifer Kessie case in Florida where that person walks in front of the gate and the frames each time, unfortunately, who they believe abducted her is behind a pillar of the fence because the frame rate is so slow. That's essentially what happens with Oog, which is why he's a shadow. He appears and then it flickers and he's 
he's not there anymore because the frame rate is so low. And that's important to keep in mind because the police will say no one was seen leaving Oog's apartment and there's major issues with that statement because A, it doesn't look at his apartment, doesn't capture his porch, you cannot see his apartment at all on it, and B, it's motion detected um, and it didn't seem to detect Oog in this instance, and C, um, its frame rate is so slow it captured Oog in what would have been probably seven seconds of him walking. It captured him on one frame. So that's how slow it was. So I want you to keep that in mind. But all was normal and a neighbour later told police that he heard Oog come home and the door close. Once Oog was inside, we do know a bit of what he did because there's evidence of that, both in crime scene photos and the police reports and the autopsy. Um, so... One thing that stood out to me in the autopsy that no one brings up and I I think personally is a bit strange, but I'm interested to hear from you guys actually if you guys do this, Oog stayed fully clothed uh, for the next half an hour and it'll become apparent why that's important to me. But if you don't intend on going out again, the first thing I do when I walk in is I kick my shoes off. And I was thinking about this actually last night when I, I was lying in bed thinking about this and my older brother... um dresses very much like Oog and he always keeps his his sneakers on, you know, he keeps his trainers on, even when he's just around the house. And I've always thought that's strange. Like I never have shoes on um, ever. <laughs> and I wear thongs, flip-flops in summer. And I'm very like, I walk outside with bare feet. Like I really like bare feet and like touching the ground and stuff. But Oog didn't kick his shoes off. The autopsy documents what he's wearing the police reports when the police arrive document what he's wearing he's in his black shirt his black pants uh his black sneakers I don't know what you guys call them over there trainers runners whatever his socks um he didn't seem to have his cap on so he took that off but I I just that's one thing that stood out to me um if you don't intend on going anywhere it's two in the morning unless you're drunk I mean I've been known in the past to kind of heat up food when I get home, which is why I relate to Oog and I can picture him doing all this, um, to still be wearing like high heels way back in the day when I could wear them and walk in them. Um, and then be like, Oh God, fuck, I got to take these off. But normally I'd be like, kick my shoes off. So I'm interested to know, do you guys like kick your shoes off the minute that you walk in the door? So we do know that Oog made some food. Now I believe he probably just heated it up and it was leftovers because there's not enough time to make what he ate. People think this is a weird meal. Rice and peas is what he ate. I don't think that's weird at all. You should see some of the weird concoctions I've made in the past, um, as recently as yesterday. How's rice and peas weird? It's probably just what was in his fridge left over from a meal that he'd made. To me, there's not enough time to cook rice and then have what happened happen because we've only got about 30 minutes and I don't see him going through that. Um, unless he microwaved rice and there's no evidence of that. I don't see him going through all that when he's had a few drinks. He's probably tired after a long day. So I think he probably just took it out of the fridge. He was eating it and he made it through a bit of it in the crime scene photos where there's blood all over the countertop um, everywhere and in the food. There is the plate. It's kind of balanced on his kitchen bench, almost on the sink, like he put it down when he was disturbed by something or he was just drunk and eating at the bench, which, you know, 
everyone does. There's no knife. There's just a fork, which I don't think is weird. Some people do. Um, if you're on your own, you eat like a pig um, and shovel food into your mouth, as my mother would put it. Don't shovel food. Push it onto your fork with a knife. But when you're on your own, um, I just everyone eats just with a fork, like it's using it like a spoon, like a shovel. The fork is placed onto the plate in the photos, like he placed it down uh, with its kind of place the normal way. I don't know how else to describe it. And he'd he'd eaten a little bit of it because it had made it into his digestive tract. So I believe that was probably the first thing that he did when he got home because I do know it takes it takes about two hours on average for food to exit your stomach. It's not very it's pretty quick for it to make it to your stomach, but then to exit your stomach. And the reason that I know this is because I had to learn it in the last year because I have to take my hormone replacement thyroid pills on an empty stomach. You can't have anything in your stomach every day. Otherwise even just a drop of coffee or anything will it, it means it doesn't take and then long term I die. <laughs> um so I, I kind of had to learn how long until my stomach's empty and it's best just to do it when you first wake up obviously when your stomach's empty and then I can't eat anything for around an hour afterwards um, to allow it to exit but through researching this I know that it makes it to your stomach quickly but then it exits and makes its way into your intestines and your bowel generally like two to four hours depending on how fast your digestive tract is and it hadn't exited Oog's stomach which indicates that like he'd eaten it but it hadn't started to digest so the unfinished plate is on the bench and his stomach did hold traces of the meal. Not a whole, a huge amount, but a bit. There's still a fair bit left over on the plate in the photos. What we do know is that Oog then jumped on his new laptop, um, which was brand new, and he did a bit of late night web surfing. And this is another part where sources differ. Some say that he looked at real estate for... Um, for sale in Argentina because he was looking at buying a property in Buenos Aires. Some say he went on dating sites and then others say he went to 130 porn sites in the space of about 25 minutes. And Web Sleuths discusses that. How, A, how would you go to that many? Um, and what was he looking at? Was it photos or was it video? It couldn't have been videos. Um, it, it seems that Oog was either this is an important question and there needs to be clarification. Like what did he look at? Um, the issue with the, his phone and the laptop is that the police did not really look at either to see what he was doing. And it would take an independent French investigation where the French would come over and do their own investigation because they felt that San Francisco did not do a thorough investigation. And the French would pass down a 2000 page report ultimately about their own investigation and what they believe happened. And it was down to them to look at the laptop and I can't access the report and I can't get clarification on what exactly he was looking at. I believe it was like a mixture of tabs where he was kind of, he had tabs already open on the laptop. He he had an online dating site tab. Um, but you would think that that would be so crucial to this case, what he was doing. Did he have enough time to jump online and tee up a woman and have her arrive at his door in 20 minutes? I don't think so. Um, had he been an, interacting with someone earlier in the night? potentially. Um, they never looked at his phone ever to see incoming texts or anything like that. 
I just think this is really important as to what mindset he was on in and maybe why he still was fully clothed with his shoes on if he was awaiting someone who was going to come over. Had he made a phone call on his phone? These are all like important questions and that's why the water being muddied so much by web sleuths and um, people, a lot of hearsay in this and adding things to forums with no accountability of where they get that information is so kind of detrimental. So that is one question that I have. But what we do know is that the French would later test his laptop to see kind of when he powered it down. So if he got home at 2.06am, and I will wrap this all up in part two and what I think happened with the actual timeline, he ate food, heated it up, booted up his laptop Stood at the bench, maybe eating his food, got a bit full, walked over to his laptop, sat on the couch. The laptop and the phone were on a coffee table, which is in crime scene photos and another important aspect of it, why the laptop is covered in blood, but the the phone isn't, then the coffee table isn't. Um, but what the French were able to determine through the laptop settings and all of the tech, techie kind of stuff was that at around 2.38am, the power cord was yanked from his computer, meaning it was connected to charge at some point and he disconnected it. Now, I don't like how they use the term yanked because I'm literally charging my laptop up right now and I just, you know, pull the cord out and there's no nothing nefarious going on. It's just I'm either taking it to bed with me, the it's done charging or I don't want to overcharge it. It's been on charge all day and I forgot about it or something like that. We don't know if Oog was going to take it to bed with him, the laptop to scroll things while he was sitting in bed. We don't know if he was just, you know, uh, it was done charging and he, he unplugged it. We don't know, but we do know that he disconnected the power cord uh, from the laptop or at least someone did. 2.38 is a really important time. He's been home for around 32 minutes by this point, thereabouts. Um, and what follows is the most crucial part of this whole case. It's the noises that his next door neighbours hear, a man and his girlfriend. His name's Orion. Her name is something foreign. She's on 48 hours. I can't think of what it was, Katanjali or something. Um, they were asleep. Orion works in a he was a hotel concierge at the time, knew Oog in the sense that he would just say, hey, what's up? Um, now, what he heard was around 2.38, and they believe that this is around the time the power cord was removed from his computer, 2.38 or very shortly after, Orion was kind of awoken from a bit of a light sleep or dozing off by what he thought was a thud in Oog's apartment. Bear in mind that he was kind of half asleep, but it seems that probably his job, he's probably good at like waking up quite quickly or, or kind of having power naps on the job. Um, and so Orion heard this and he talks about it on 48 hours while he's sitting on the actual stoop out the front. But he also talked to the San Francisco Chronicle in 2008 and this is what he told them. Quote, then as I was listening to the noises, meaning the thud in Oog's apartment, and that's all he described it as, the thud, quote, I heard his door open and close, then open and close again a few minutes later, and then I heard footsteps running down the stairs. So basically what Orion heard was a thud, and then Oog's door opened and closed, and then 
three minutes or so went by and then he heard the door open and close again. He heard no screaming, no footsteps in that time, in that interim. And then what he heard because they've got the front stoop that they all share and it's got the five steps, which is why it's important to look at these pictures, he heard the footsteps running down those stoop stairs and fleeing seemingly into the night. And he says running down the stairs, not up the stairs. So keep that in mind. And living in an apartment block, you get used to all these noises. You know exactly what they are. I hear thuds all the time. This is why it's not weird at all to me that Orion went back to sleep because he said it didn't sound like a scuffle or that anyone was there at all. Could have been anything and he went back to sleep. Last night um, when I was kind of overlooking this for the last time before recording it, I heard almost identical noises. I heard a thud in my downstairs neighbour's apartment. I then heard them, the door shut, and then I heard running up the stairs of the apartment where they were going to see one of my other neighbours or something like that. Um, And I was not disturbed because this is noises that happen all the time. Seemingly, Orion was the only one roused by this noise because no other neighbours heard anything. There was no screaming, nothing like that. Five hours later... It's now the morning of June 2nd, 2007, around 8am. The sun was up and locals were going about their Saturday morning and beginning their whatever plans they had for that weekend slowly. Um, one of the Linden Street residents, who I believe lived across the road, this very narrow street from Oog, who has been who was interviewed extensively at the time, he stepped outside to grab his morning newspaper, which had been delivered and thrown out the front. And when he glanced across as he bent down to pick up his newspaper, he saw Oog's stoop and he saw what appeared to be blood all over that porch stoop area from the top step across the stoop, not going down the bottom four steps. It was then dripping over kind of the concrete of the steps down onto the street level. And looking closer, as he stepped closer, he saw blood was dripping from what was Oog's doorknob. And it was a lot of it because he saw it dripping. This scene, it's indescribable. It's almost like you... If you've ever seen someone glassed or something, and I saw a guy glassed at a pub once in his head, and the amount of blood that spewed out of his head because your head is constantly so much blood comes out of a head wound it was like turning a hose on and sticking your finger on the end of the hose so the water sprays everywhere it was like that and the volume and speed at which it happened was it just, I was like, oh, I was only like 17 um, when I saw it and I'll never forget it, the amount of blood that just came out and I was at a bar and it was spattering into people's because he put his head down and kind of put his hand up to touch it, which is the natural reaction when he got a wound. He put his head down and it started spewing into people's beer glasses and so all their beers had this bright pink, almost frothy blood floating in the beer. It was grotesque so I can just imagine how what this guy saw it was just crazy and you can look at pictures of it so obviously this neighbor ran inside and called police and the SFPD soon arrived and they knocked on the door um, of Oog's apartment and there was no answer due to the amount of blood they were obviously concerned for the person inside and the door was locked now Oog's door locks 
I want to say from right now because there's a lot of confusion with people with this and this is where it comes into the locked room theory. I had locks like this in my house growing up. They're called a button lock, I believe. You press the little button on the back of the door and you can pull the door behind you as you leave the house. And it was really good because if we didn't have a key but we had to leave the house, we'd just be able to push the button in and pull the door behind you. And a lot of you probably have those locks and I don't know what the official name is, but Oog's back door, which was off his kitchen, and his front door both apparently had these locks according to Melissa Nix. So the door was locked, but you can head down around the side to the rear of the property where you can then kind of access a back door. And they saw that Oog's back door was also locked, but they were able to look in because there's a glass panel in the back door, but there isn't a glass panel. It's completely solid wood, the front door. So you can't look out with the front door, but you can look out the window next to it. The back door, you can look out a glass panel, but there's a curtain hanging on it. But I believe the curtain, um, they could see through the curtain because it's quite a sheer curtain. And what they saw was an absolute bloodbath. There was blood all over the kitchen floor, right trailed through as far as they could see. It was all over the kitchen bench, massive round like blood spatters. Um, and so obviously they broke the rear door down uh, quite easily. Um, and they found Oog and it seemed that he had tracked into the kitchen from the front porch all the way back to the rear kitchen. And then he doubled back through his own uh, blood droplets and you could see his footprints in it and gone back to the living room, which was closer to the front door. And he had essentially collapsed in the living room and the autopsy goes into, into this. Um, he had been essentially stabbed to death across in three major stab wounds across his chest, neck and abdomen. And he was still dressed in his all black ensemble. Now in the autopsy report, one of the interesting things is that when they include the police report in it, it says that the police were like initially believed that he had been shot multiple times based on what they were looking at and they didn't want to touch him or compromise the scene. It was very clear that he was dead, although the autopsy does talk about how he was still warm, which made sense. He would have died about five hours before, but with the ambient temperature in the room, which they tested and they did all of this, your body temperature goes down a certain amount every hour and it made sense that he died around the time that Orion heard these noises at around 2.38. Um, so it had been around five and a half hours by this point. So the police very quickly cordoned off the scene. They called for backup and they called for paramedics who were interviewed on the 48 Hours documentary. The female paramedic that they interview said something that really stood out to me because I've, it's something you don't really think about, but it's something that I've heard from people in random cases. It's something where your sense of smell kicks in and the smell of blood, essentially. So she said that when they arrived, the police had already taped off the scene and there's pictures of that and there's footage of the paramedics arriving. It's paramedics that work for the fire department and as she stepped up onto the porch, she said that a gust of air went through and the wind started to blow and the smell of blood hit her. And that really stood out to me because it looked like she'd been in this job for years. And normally you're nose blind um, when you smelled so many horrific things. My mum works in, has worked in hospitals and that for 50 years, hospitals and nursing homes, she can't smell anything. Um, she's almost completely nose blind as they put it um, where you can smell it because you're 
not used to it immediately. But it stood out to me that this woman paramedic, the fact that she commented on just the smell of blood, which is an iron smell, um, it smells essentially like coins. Um, if you've ever smelt like an excessive amount of blood, it it kind of shocked her. She knew what was behind the door, behind the cordon, the amount of blood. And there's a famous crime scene in Melbourne where they say an identical thing. These girls were murdered in their house and in the 70s and it's still unsolved. And someone who found them ultimately kind of, they were down a hallway and when they stepped into the hallway, before they even saw the bodies, they could smell the iron in the blood because there was so much of it. Here is that female paramedic talking about that on 48 Hours. Time to wake up. We pulled up to the scene. The police tape was already up. I remember seeing lots of cops. As we were walking up to the house, the wind started to blow. But as soon as I hit the door, the smell was very distinctive because blood smells like iron. It hit me like a wall. And there was so much of it. It was just unbelievable the amount of blood. I've never seen anything like that. I couldn't imagine what his last moments were like. We were only in the house maybe, I'm not even sure we were there for a minute, and it was kind of hard to put together what had happened. You can see when he started to pass out, because the handprints and smears are going down the wall because he's falling backwards. It was very sad because you can tell he's just grabbing at anything. That was the most unusual crime scene I'd ever seen, and I did deem it as a crime scene. And that is where I'm going to leave you for part one. Because it's getting on a bit. Uh, there's still part two is going to be way bigger than this part um, in terms of information. So I think it's good to break now so you can have a look at the photos and things like that if you want to. Um, and I think that's really important in order to discuss this. What follows is essentially obviously a lot of theories that continue on almost 16 years on to um, police officers, medical examiners, who a lot of people point to as potentially um, covering up what was a murder, the defence of these police officers, which I'll get into, the autopsy reports of what killed Oog versus um, what's been said, which I, I'm going to read you quite a lot of like reports and things like that, a lot of like he said, she said, a lot of unanswered questions um, and a huge amount that you'll have to kind of take into consideration. I'm not going to leave it too long between parts, don't worry, um, because I'm kind of on a roll and it's all on the top of my mind. Um, so don't theorise just yet because I could answer your questions in the coming part and I believe it will be two parts at this point. So, um, yeah, start kind of thinking and I'll be back with part two soon.